Welcome to another American Bankruptcy Institute podcast. I'm Sam Giordano, ABI Executive Director. An internet search for the term blockchain today produces over 170 million results. If you've been under a rock for the last year, blockchain is the new internet technology still in its inception stage, but is already having a revolutionary effect in the financial sector. While some are skeptical towards its potential as a mere fad, many other big thinking leaders have trust that it will produce efficiencies and transparency for not only international finance, but any supply chain arrangement. For example, Microsoft founder Bill Gates has called it a technological tour de force. Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are dependent on blockchain as the underlying distributed ledger that guarantees tamper-resistant permanent transactions. But that's not all blockchain does or has the potential to do. At the upcoming ABI Winter Leadership Conference, two different panels of experts will discuss the current state of cybersecurity and litigating in this new area of financial technology, both in and out of bankruptcy. Two of the panelists are with us today. David Fisher is the founder and CEO of Integra Ledger in Denver, Colorado. Integra is the developer of the blockchain for law. He is also one of the founders of the recently announced Global Legal Blockchain Consortium, which is a legal industry group focused on standards and governances for the use of blockchain technology in the legal industry. Laura Gell is a partner in the Washington, D.C. office of Baker and Hostetler. Laura focuses her practice on the intersection of law, data, and emerging technologies. She's co-leader of both the firm's General Data Protection Regulation Initiative and of its blockchain technology and digital currencies team. She currently advises clients on U.S. and international privacy, data protection, and cybersecurity matters. So welcome to you both to ABI Podcast. Thanks for having us. Yes, glad to be here. David, let's let's start with you from a kind of a broad kind of 20,000 foot view of of a blockchain as a as legal technology. Um, and and so why does it why does it matter? Why why should blockchain be at the forefront of everybody's uh, mindset when they think about um, legal technology these days? Yeah, so I mean, the reason we're, we're, we're talking about blockchain at all is what Bitcoin, uh, which just passed its 10th anniversary, uh, revealed to the world, which was a technology architecture that allowed uh, disparate, untrusted participants in a network to, to trust the integrity and authenticity of digital data. Uh, that's a pretty remarkable development. Uh, just in general, in terms of information, information technology. Because if you think about it, uh, in the world, we're used to relying on intermediaries uh, for to, to um, validate information. And that could be a bank, uh, in terms of bank accounts and, and flows of, of money and currency. Uh, it could be a government, you know, in terms of, of uh, information with regard to citizenship, or things as, as mundane as driver's license at, at the DMV. Uh, all, of, all of life really is organized around these large, complex intermediaries. Uh, and in particular, I mean, some of the biggest ones uh, of note now are, are companies like Facebook, you know, 
private companies, you know, that that possess vast stores of data, you know, on sometimes billions of individuals, where they've consolidated that data, and we now rely on them to then redistribute it. What Bitcoin proved uh, is that you can actually trust information between uh, disparate parties without the need for these large, complex intermediaries. This is important because what we've seen over the last several years has been increasing uh, danger uh, related to the, these so-called honeypots of information, you know, whether it's Equifax you know, and credit files you know, and the huge breach that occurred there, uh, Sony Pictures, the U.S. government itself, uh, and recently Facebook. Right. Uh, what happens is, is when you have this, these enormous stores of, of, of centralized information is you create tremendous temptation um, you know, and tremendous vulnerability once someone gets inside the walls. Uh, and so at blockchain, um, you know, we believe uh, uh, presents as an opportunity for the legal industry is a new technology architecture uh, to make the data ecosystem of the legal industry uh, far more secure, uh, far more private, uh, and with it um, add significant uh, new data integrity and authenticity uh, features uh, so that as law firms interact with their clients and other law firms and, and clients interact with each other, uh, they can do so in a way uh, that uh, dramatically increases is trust and reduces the need uh, to centralize information in ways that make it uh, uh, risky um, and vulnerable. Right. So, so Laura, speaking of law firms and clients, uh, that's your space for sure. You, you certainly advise them um, about these new technologies and and best practices. Um, uh, do you do you are your clients comfortable trusting technologies like blockchain? I think they're getting there. Um, you know, it's. We, we advise clients across a variety of industries. You know, I've, I've been speaking and talking to people in the financial services industry, certainly, and that's probably the most mature market. But there's also, you know, a whole lot of experimentation and pilot um, piloting of programs in things like the food supply um, uh, chain, where Walmart's getting involved, some big names. Um, Digital advertising is looking at blockchain to be to keep good records and shared records and trusted records in an industry that's known for distrust and um, massive amounts of sort of auditing of, of data. So you see it across, you know, pharmaceutical industry has some supply chain management obligations. You see blockchain emerging um, across all sorts of industries and, you know, not just sort of startup companies in the cryptocurrency space. Um so my job, you know, by and large, is to help um, established enterprises, startups, everybody understand the technology, understand the emerging legal questions around the technology, because you know when new technologies show up, they you know, they often either have to be crammed into existing law, or um, you know new laws have to be developed that contemplate the capabilities and powers of that technology. So uh, you know. The clients are, you know, have a varying degree of sophistication around these issues and, you know, varying degree of, of risk tolerance to test out the um, the reach of the laws and, and regulators, uh, for sure. And you see some of that in the, in the security space around uh, initial coin offerings. But it, it's, 
it's beginning to shake out. I think there's a lot more that needs to shake out, but but as the promise of the technology becomes more and more appealing across these different industries, you see the you know we're beginning to see clients taking steps to help shape the law and to help understand the implications of the, the legal implications of using the technology. Since the um, arrangements seem to be mostly um, private, uh, there is not a t- typical kind of regulatory regime that that you and your uh, clients are, are used to, whether it's the you know, FCC or SEC or Justice Department uh, or FTC. Um, who, who's the regulatory cop on the beat for all of these things, Laura? Well, that's an excellent question. It depends on who you ask. You know, what happens with, um, with emerging technologies is they emerge and then the law follows by a larger regulation follows. So regulation is always chasing technology, which, you know, it moves faster and is more nimble. So um, as issues arise, and particularly you see them arising first in the blockchain side around cryptocurrency um, and around um, tokens and or, or initial coin offerings, whoever, you know, anybody who's interested in regulating it defines, you know, they, ha- they have limited jurisdiction. So the uh, commodities futures trading, uh, you know, folks, the CFTC, they say, um, you know, uh, tokens or cryptocurrencies, these are, these are commodities. The SEC, which has jurisdiction over securities, says they're securities. The IRS, which has jurisdiction over property and, and money, says they're property. So it really depends who you ask, and the answer really depends on the jurisdiction of any interested regulator. They have to define these, these, these um, assets or these tokens in ways that allow them to regulate them. So it's, all, it's a little bit self-fulfilling. Um, but it also creates enormous confusion and often contradictory results in the industry, and that's a source of a lot of frustration right now. I mean, since this technology is global, it seems like we're not even limited to the U.S. regulatory sphere, but the idea of sort of international cooperation uh, seems like it might be uh, essential. Yeah, I think you're right, although I think we're a ways from international cooperation. I think what we have right now is, um, you know, on a fairly large scale, international confusion. Um, we have a, you know, when I do presentations on this, I have a slide that has lots of flags of, of it's actually very pretty, um, of different jurisdictions and shows what direction they're moving in regulation of cryptocurrencies and blockchain and ICOs. And some of them, you know, end up on both sides of the slide. Some of them have at times been very permissive and then moved to a more restrictive environment. I think Malta just passed several, three new laws last week. I think China's got a new law proposed. There's just a lot going on, so a lot of volatility, a lot of change, and so there's not the predictable regulatory structure or the international consensus that you might hope for. You know what is, as you point out, a very international technology. I like to I like to um, also clarify that um, blockchain as a technology is really just a variant on a distributed database, uh, and so that fact is not controversial. Uh, I don't think anyone's too upset about you know, Oracle databases or SQL Server databases um, to the extent that they serve the function of storing and, and serving data. Uh, so the, the, the actual technology of blockchain is, is really not uh, uh, one of controversy. What's significant about it is the fact that it's, it's this unique uh, distributed uh, database structure you know, and, and an immutable 
uh, uneditable, you know, typically um, uh, distributed database, creates you know, this digital trust. That the, the fact of that ability to create digital trust is what gave rise to the ability to have cryptocurrency, right, and tokens, uh, and that's the point of controversy is once you can actually trust something in the digital realm uh, without without an intermediary, that's why the regulatory issues have cropped up. Uh, but we see uh, that cryptocurrency is just one application or tokenization of assets, you know, as one consequence of the underlying technology. Uh, but I think the more broadly, uh, the technology will, will be deployed in applications that do not implicate uh, a regulatory framework, you know, such as, again, the food chain, for example. You know, the, the notion of creating digital trust along supply chains you know, is not necessarily a regulatory issue. And so it, it's, it's important to clarify for any, anyone listening to this podcast that um, the, the, the technology of blockchain per se uh, is, is not you know, creating questions of regulation of blockchain. It's, it's some of the novel applications you know, that are built on top of blockchain that are creating such consternation. Right. But, but, but David, in an environment where, as you mentioned earlier, the security breaches that have occurred um, in the technology space, when you talk about this idea of digital trust, um, how can folks be confident that digital trust can be maintained in an environment where we learn of new breaches every day? I think it's hard to you know, explain in detail in, in the context of this type of, of podcast, but uh, you know, we're talking about a, a fundamental 180-degree turn in the way um, you know, information is shared. So, so you know, with blockchain, and again, you know, taking us back to the cryptocurrency example, the, the, it's the architecture of the system that allows someone to send a Bitcoin uh, which is and sending it really is just a question of of writing one number from one account to another, um, but the fact that that can be trusted, you know, as 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 a unique uh, transaction, uh, you know, creates the. I mean, the fact that you can do that without knowing the identity, you know, of the sender or receiver, that by itself, you know, creates the interesting potential uh, of increased security. The notion that you don't have to send this entire package of information, including you know the name and the the driver's license number and other identifiable characteristics, the the it's the architecture of blockchain that that and this, and this is why we're so focused on its application in the legal industry itself, the ability to trust and confirm information without having to share all the information, you know, in ways that that make it vulnerable. Um, you know, is is what we think makes this far more secure. So it's not a question of sharing the same information in a more secure way. It's about actually sharing less information uh, in a and 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 reducing the attack vectors. Uh, and so it, it's it's really a paradigm shift. Uh, so if there if there's no information, uh, no identifiable information even being shared, then there's in a certain sense nothing that can be hacked or stolen. If that makes sense. You know, and so it's, it's that's that's where this is such a radical shift. Previously, without that level of trust, you would have to share a lot more information. So another example I would I would give you is is you know a contract you know signed by two.
two parties or several parties where um, they all have copies of it. Currently, the only way really to to ascertain if they're all looking at the same thing is for someone to send it to another party and compare it, right? Uh, but with blockchain, I mean, you can actually um, hash that document, which means basically create a unique digital fingerprint uh, and compare the fingerprint of the document rather than the document itself. Uh, that's, a, again, a huge advance. And you think about the amounts of information that are shared just by email you know, personally identifiable information, social security numbers, bank account numbers, that sort of thing. Um, how much better would it be you know, if the world could, inter could interact, and the legal industry in particular, in a way that allowed us to confirm in information across entity boundaries without having to actually expose that information in a way that would make it um, at risk? And I take it that's what the um, Global Legal Blockchain Consortium is is working on to... Um, encourage the promotion of, of uh, best practices? Yes, yeah, so we're, we're at about 145 institutions at this point from, I think, 25 countries. And you know, it, it's, it's really taking a deep dive into the infrastructure of law. Uh, and this is distinctly different than, and, than, for example, what Laura is probably doing with her practice you know, in advising clients. You know, in the GLBC, we're focused on the legal industry itself uh, and how it interacts with itself. Uh, and so it, it's setting standards for that type of data transfer, you know, identities of data, uh, any sort of encryption standards, uh, that sort of thing, uh, so that really a new infrastructure can be built underneath the existing technology stack uh, of law uh, to, to make it much more secure. So, yes, we're 100% we're focused on applying black blockchain technology to uh, the legal industry itself and how it operates and communicates. What types of companies are among the 145 that are that are in the consortium now? Well, Baker Hostetler was was one of the first very um, <laughs> uh, ago. I mean, it's major law firms ranging major from, law firms. from okay. you know, Latham & Watkins, Oric, Denton, Sherman & Sterling, White & Case. So huge law firms, global law firms, uh, technology companies you know, mm -hmm. such as NetDocuments, which is the number two a document management company. They've done a very deep integration of blockchain you know, with their document management system, which uh, currently, I believe, manages over 10 billion documents, uh, pointing out the significance of this you know, when you start to secure that information um, uh, uh, more formidably via blockchain. Uh, and then and the big uh, legal information uh, companies, so Thomson Reuters, Walters Kluwer, uh, I think there are about a dozen universities. So it's really all stakeholders across mm -hmm. Uh, the legal universe, uh, because everyone's involved, everyone's implicated. You know, either it's, it's you know clients that that you know need services. I mean, we, there are major companies involved: IBM for one, Liberty Mutual Insurance, uh, various others. Um, so it, it's it's consumers of legal services, it's providers of legal services, it's information services companies, it's the technology companies, uh, and it's the academics. You know, everyone's involved. So, Laura, I wanted to ask you about the GDPR uh, regulation. I won't ask you to explain it. It might take a while. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, I've heard probably uh, 
10 explanations, and it's um, still not, not clear to me, at least, except I have a, a very uh, specific sense that we're not in compliance <laughs> because it is, in part, so complicated. So how, in, in terms of your advising of your, of your clients, how, is, uh, how, does that, how does that work? Do you um, establish a, a kind of protocol for, for firms to, to follow? Um, uh, or is there a training program or a compliance program? How how do you how do you try to to get across compliance with the with the global regulation? Well, you know, we I advise clients in every industry, every sort of size, shape, and flavor um, that might be subject to GDPR. But some of the more interesting and challenging work that I've been doing is around the application of GDPR to blockchain. Um, GDPR, I won't go, I won't tell you the whole thing, but it is, you know, it's a large, extensive regulation that really has a couple, you know, fundamental principles underlying it. There's this idea of, you know, transparency about the uses of data, about the, uh, the individual control over the use of their data, and um, uh, data minimization. And all of those things are actually very consistent, um, fundamentally consistent with blockchain and with some of the, the digital identity um, or self-sovereign identity uh, issues that, that David's been suggesting about individual control and not creating huge centralized databases. Where blockchain and GDPR get tangled up a bit is that while you know each of those regimes suggest that the individuals ought to be able to control the use of their data, the European regulators and the European concept of privacy includes a little bit of a, of a protective function for the state, which is fundamentally, philosophically quite different than, than most right. blockchain adherents who tend to be kind of anarchists. I gather. Um, you know, at least, like, at, least, at, least concerned, at least concerned by centralized institutions, and the Europeans love centralized institutions. Yeah. So, you know, the, yeah. role, the role they contemplate is this idea that you ought to be able to change your mind or you want to be able to pull back your data and have it erased. It's what they call the right of erasure. Mm. And that runs, you know, kind of smack into the immutability of the blockchain. And the immutability of the data on a blockchain is it's a, it's a fundamental feature. It's right. what creates trust. Right. You, can't, you can't go around it. So it's been interesting to watch, you know, those are, the, the law emerged, the regulation emerged at almost exactly the same time that blockchain was really gathering speed and they really didn't contemplate each other. It's right. kind of like you know, two cars crashing around a blind corner. So it's been interesting to watch the regulators try to be nimble about it and, and us to help our clients um, design their systems in ways that can be compliant. Sounds like a breeze. International cooperation and, and advancing technology all at once. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, you know, it's good to have tough intellectual problems to solve every once in a while. So that's, that's what we tell ourselves anyway. It's been, it's been challenging, but it really, it does, you know, it does make people think about things like minimizing the amount of personal data that they share and minimizing the amount of personal data that their systems collect, which in this, you know, current environment, I think is a good thing for everybody. Well, this is fascinating stuff. I'm really looking forward to um, the two panels um, that you all are going to be on at, at our Winter Leadership Conference in uh, December. Uh, in Scottsdale. Uh, those panels are on Friday, December 7th. Uh, you can find out more about them at the ABI website for the Winter Leadership Conference. And that's about all the time we have for today, but I want to thank uh, both David and Laura for joining us and giving us a taste of the kinds of uh, complexity that's involved in in um, blockchain and, and cryptocurrency regulation. 
Thank you for being with us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. And we want to thank our audience as well. There are more than 200 podcasts available at the ABI website in the newsroom section, or you can also follow uh, us on SoundCloud. And so until next time for ABI Podcasts, this is Sam Giordano saying good day. (laughs) 